May I speak in the name of God, the lover, God, the beloved, and God, the love sharer. Amen. I feel I've set myself a somewhat difficult task for this morning's sermon, which in a way arose from a flippant or maybe not so flippant comment because obviously it was an expression of something that had been going on in my thoughts throughout the week. But on leaving on Friday afternoon, I commented to somebody, well, my task is to connect Paul's letter to the Galatians with Doma. And that's the task that I would like to take you through step by step this morning. Since Trinity Sunday, we've been listening to Paul's letter to the Christians in Galatia. And Galatia is that part of Anatolia, that central part of Turkey, where the capital Ankara now stands. And Paul is at his most passionate in this letter to the Galatians. And in a sense, it gives us a very clear understanding of Paul's central message. Because sometimes I'm tempted to say, will the real Paul stand up, please? Because the tradition as we've received it ascribes to Paul a number of New Testament letters that clearly were not written by him. How do we know that? Well, we know that because they are at variance with the central message that Paul is preaching in his letter to the Galatians. What is the central message of Paul? It's simple. The cross and resurrection of Christ changes simply everything. Now, I struggle, perhaps you do too, with Paul. I sometimes used to think that the struggle was with his message, but I'm with Paul. I do believe that the cross and resurrection of Christ simply changes everything. Is it Paul's language? Paul is limited by the language that he, only, that he has available to him. And one of the advantages that I feel that we have in the 21st century is that our thinking has been molded by over a century of psychological thought, which gives us a more nuanced language than that which was available to Paul. So Paul, for instance, likes to contrast the life of the flesh with the life of the spirit. And I came across this last week in a lectionary blogger from Australia, Andrew Pryor. Uh, He says, when I stop to think about the works of the flesh and the fruits of the spirit, I struggle to understand Paul's conception of what happens to us in our life as Christians. And I'm even less confident in being able to translate it into psychological and philosophical language that works for me. 
That phrase, works for me, struck a chord. Because I too want Paul and his message to work for me. Now sometimes that phrase, work for me, is a bit of a red flag because it's an indication that progressives and liberals and all sorts of other bad people, like myself, are about to funnel the message down to only that which is convenient for them to understand. I don't want to do that. In using the phrase, works for me, I'm really saying I want more from Paul, not less. And when I make that demand, what I do find is slowly growing freedom. Freedom from things that used to bother me and worry me and have a hold on me. And I've come to understand that at the heart of my struggle with Paul is really my struggle with patriarchy and the way patriarchy has imprisoned Paul's message and really the message of Jesus and the whole of the New Testament. So what is patriarchy? Well, it's a term of abuse bandied about by feminists and liberals of all hue and color. But I want to attempt a more objective definition of it. Patriarchy is a worldview that structures and governs the relationships that you and I have with one another in society. And how does it do this? Well, it does it through the regulation of power. And the regulation of power rests on the psychological principle known as the phallus, phallic power. And using The principle of phallic power, patriarchy organizes the relationships between men and women, ensuring that men have more control and women have less. It organizes the relationships between men and children, ensuring that men have more control and children are merely obedient. And what's also very difficult is that it organizes the relationships among men according to the principle of power. The men at the top are the powerful ones. Phallic power derives from a whole range of conditions, physical, social, economic, intellectual, And the relationship between men is controlled and governed, those who are more powerful, those who are less powerful, according to the same principles that govern the relationship between men and women. 
Now, Paul's problem with the Galatians is really about phallic power. It's about patriarchy. And it may surprise you to learn that Paul is the implacable enemy of patriarchy, as was Jesus. Paul's original concern was that he had converted the Galatians to Christianity, to the new life in Christ, along the principles of freedom from bondage. And as Paul has traveled to other churches and left the Galatians, a new group has kind of infiltrated itself. This is a group of conservative Jewish Christians who are saying to the Galatians, well, what Paul has told you is all well and good. However, to become real Christians, you need to submit to the law of Moses. And the symbol of that submission is circumcision. Paul is horrified because circumcision is about men, men who have penises. And it places male phallic power at the heart of the human relationship with God. Paul is so horrified by the implications of this that he says at the end of chapter 5, why don't these agitators go the whole hog and make themselves eunuchs? And here we see Paul equating circumcision with the mutilation of castration. So what was Paul's message to the Galatians? It was that entry into the new life in Christ is through baptism, not circumcision. It's entry into a life of freedom. And the freedom Paul speaks of leads to a new set of social relations defined not by phallic power. In chapter 3, which we heard last week, Paul proclaims that for those who belong to Christ, there is no longer Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. And following Paul's reasoning, It seems reasonable, at least to me, that in our own age, we add to his list homosexual and heterosexual. And that leads me to connect Paul's message in Galatians to Doma. The Supreme Court have had a busy week. Well, actually, it's not a busy week. All they've done is announced their decisions, which, of course, they've been working on over time. And in signaling, singling out DOMA, I, it is not my intention 
to ignore the other momentous decisions that they released this last week, especially the repeal of the Voting Rights Act, the implications of which are far-reaching. But as the justices sat and considered the decision of whether to strike down DOMA or not, I don't suppose for one moment they were thinking about the message of Paul. Perhaps if they were, they would assume, because of the patriarchal interpretation of Paul, that he would have been against their decision. And yet it's clear from his letter to the Galatians that Paul would have applauded their decision to strike down the offending sections of the Defense of Marriage Act. Why, do, why did we have the Defense of Marriage Act in the first place? Well, it was an expression of patriarchal phallic power in an attempt to define and control the nature of marriage. And it brings patriarchy and its conflict with gay men into the spotlight. Because for patriarchy, gay men represent a compromised version of masculinity. It's too close to the worldview that women hold for the comfort of the patriarchal structures. But unlike women, who within patriarchy are always identifiable, gay men pass in secret and therefore pose a real danger to patriarchal order because they can be perceived as the enemy from within. Now, I'm talking about gay men not to exclude gay women. The repeal of the Defense of Marriage Act affects both gay women and gay men. I'm signaling out gay men because gay women are not a challenge to patriarchy. The fact that women may marry each other is no threat to phallic power because it's just seen as another one of those domestic arrangements that women make among themselves. Ah, but the marriage of gay men to one another strikes at the very root of the patriarchal concept of marriage, as we have heard in the cries of anguish coming from some of our legislative assemblies. Because at the heart of DOMA, which was rightly argued on the basis of equality, but deeper down at the heart of it, there is this conflict over the image of marriage. And it's paradoxical, isn't it, that gay people have an enthusiasm for marriage, which many straight people no longer possess. And so at the heart is this conflict between two views of marriage. The first view is, if marriage is seen 
as a bonded and committed relationship made in the sight of God and the community between two human beings within which they create a space for the flourishing of human life. Then marriage is no threat to patriarchy. But if marriage is seen as the patriarchal structuring of power relationships between men and women and men and children, then gay marriage strikes at the root of that. And the proponents of patriarchy have reason to be concerned. In Jesus' teaching on divorce, one thing is clear. He moves marriage from a legalistic patriarchal relationship to the focus of the quality of the relationship between the two people. And as we expand the notion of marriage to include gay people as well as straight people, we are opening up that line that Jesus establishes where the quality of the relationship between the two parties to the marriage is what is of concern to God. My desire is that Paul's teaching can work for me. And it leads me to challenge, surprisingly, to challenge the patriarchal interpretive bias that his teaching and all of Christianity has been imprisoned within. And I believe that challenging this bias is good for our society. In response to this challenge, we hear the strident voices of patriarchy being raised. Those voices say, patriarchy is what God intends for humanity. But what does God intend for humanity? And I can find no better advocate in answer to that question than the Apostle Paul as he appears to us in his letter to the Galatians. Because Paul proclaims that the intention of God for humanity is that we be called into the state of freedom. Not a freedom that is self-indulgent, but a freedom that is disciplined by mutual love. Love your neighbor as yourself, says Paul. And when we challenge the assumption of inequality that lies at the heart of systems of social relations, then the scriptures, and interestingly enough, the Constitution of these United States become free to speak of what God is continually dreaming for us to become. 
This is in the words of Paul to the Galatians. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. Amen.